Among the recent inductees to the National Academy of Public Administration is a former state budget official. For how the federal government looks from a state point of view, we turn to that official, now the executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers, Shelby Kearns. Ms. Kearns, good to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. And I want to go back to your experience as the budget chief for the state of Idaho, not a big state and far from Washington. And I always wonder, given the programs that states administer that the federal government ultimately funds, and therefore state budgets kind of depend in part on what the federal government decides for you every year, what is it like relating to the federal government from the state level? That's a great question. In my experience, the sort of the boots on the ground state employees and the federal program employees, they have great relationships. They're always working toward common goals. People have to concentrate on the the amount of funds that states receive from the federal government and and they think of that as as, you know, almost a gift. They forget that the federal government has programs and priorities that it's implementing through state governments. So there's a real partnership there that requires communication and working together to address issues. But at the same time, my experience, as you noted, was in a rural state where it could be sometimes difficult to explain some of the more unique challenges that we had, such as maybe when I was working at the Idaho Department of Labor, we would try to explain that we had areas without internet service or cell service, how far people would need to travel for services and other barriers they faced. And of course, similar issues exist in urban areas, but it can be difficult to explain some of those nuances. And of course, there's the political level in the state of Idaho sometimes maybe doesn't agree, you know, as a body politic with some federal policies. Does that ever get in the way of just operating from a budget standpoint? again, in relation to the feds? Sure, it definitely can. It can make it difficult to put a budget together sometimes if you have maybe a governor and a legislature who are looking at that differently. But from a program perspective, a lot of times that tension plays out in which priorities the state wants to carry out on behalf of the federal government. And of course, they can do things their own ways. They can accept or decline federal funding. Um, So we do see that play out a lot in all states. And the development of the state budget itself, my understanding is that states, I don't think any state, can do deficit spending the way the federal government can, but it can float bonds, but not to cover current expenses. So maybe talk about some of the contrasts between the federal budget development, which starts with the agencies and then turns into chaos when it gets delivered to the White House, and how the states operate, which is a June 1st fiscal year. We always say that if you've seen one state, you've seen one state. But in general, state agencies follow the same process as you see on the federal level. They submit funding requests, and then governors develop budget proposals, and and legislatures pass budget appropriations. And then governors and executive branch agencies execute those budget appropriations, and, and the process sort of starts over. But as you noted, there are some really big differences. Typical state budget practices include that budget balance over a one or two year budget window, um, the regular budget adoption through a standard appropriation process. And there's also proactive planning for contingencies, including through reserves and stress testing. And of course, on the federal level, you have those regular annual deficit spending, and they have a 10-year budget window, and most spending is outside of the regular annual appropriations process. And again, as you noted, that's their primary contingency management tool. So we do wish the federal government understood the state budget process and its constraints better, 
and use that knowledge when developing rules and guidelines around federal funding. There are things like the need for state legislators to appropriate dollars and the limitations on the timing that those legislative sessions impose and those differing fiscal years. So those things are always a challenge. We do work closely with federal agencies on issues around that implementation, but a better understanding and taking those differing processes from the state and federal level into account up front would certainly make things easier. We're speaking with Shelby Kearns. She's executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers and a new fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And looking at it from the association standpoint, where you've got all of the state members in your association, I imagine their concerns vary a lot. You know, California is maybe one end of the spectrum. At the other end is a state like Idaho, whose entire population is smaller than some counties in some of the bigger states. That's true, but you'd be amazed at how, when you get a group of budget directors together, how similar the concerns are. You know, some of those top concerns that we talk about, of course, are the economy and what shocks could cause a downturn that impacts everyone. Budget stress testing, that is something that all states look at. And things like preparing for the end of these unprecedented levels of federal funding that states have seen since 2020. So states actively discuss and implement strategies for avoiding a fiscal cliff. That impacts all states, and they work on those things together. Yeah, and just to follow up on that idea, because the state legislatures themselves vary a lot. You know, in New Hampshire, at least my experience there a long time ago, was literally a 30-day legislative session, and it was almost like farmer-citizen legislators that go up to Concord, you know, do their business and come home. Many of them went home each night to where they lived. And then, again, you've got some of the states that are big with these long-standing, huge legislatures with their gigantic staffs. And, you know, you look at the Albany state government complex, it's like little Washington. Does that have any effect on the outlook of the way uh, state budget officers think of things? Well, like I said, you see one state, you see one state, but there are commonalities. And trying to put together the governor's priorities, trying to pass those priorities, whether you're doing it in a three-month window or whether it's a year-round process with many iterations, there are more commonalities in that process and in the challenges you face than there are differences. So what are the top concerns then collectively for NASPO members and what's your message to Washington, I guess to Capitol Hill mainly? The main things, um, as I noted, are the state of the economy, avoiding a fiscal cliff as we move away from federal funding. We also issues of employee recruitment and retention, both in budget offices and statewide. Those have been a top concern. But of course, they're also watching what's happening at the federal level very closely. Concerns about a federal government shutdown and also future federal appropriations are high on the list. And I think the message I hear mostly from states is they wish that the federal budget process would mirror the state budget process a little more with passing appropriation bills and getting back to regular order. And just a detailed question, some of the large states have actuarial obligations they will never be able to pay, mainly related to state employee benefits and pensions, whereas some of the smaller states or the more frugal states don't have that issue. And at some point, those big states, Illinois, California, a lot of people worry they're going to dump their state employee pension obligations on the federal government. Has that come up ever? We have a lot of discussions around pension obligations. You know, through the last few years, states have enjoyed robust tax collections, and we've seen states make progress on making extra 
payments on their pension obligations. We've also seen many states take actions over the past, you know, maybe 10 year window to provide greater certainty and and really revamp how their pension systems work. So it's always on people's minds and something that they're actively working to address. And finally, what will you do in connection with the National Academy? What's your priority there? What projects will you plan to work on? I'm really excited about the work NAPA does around intergovernmental systems. And just that wealth of experience and passion among NAPA fellows is really energizing. So helping bridge that knowledge gap and improve the way federal programs and funding are administered will be my focus. I'm really looking forward to it. Shelby Kearns is executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers and a new fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Budget your time to listen. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.